My name is Matt Frey, one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be back with you guys again and teach this morning. Paul asked me to relay one quick announcement uh, that you'll want to pay attention to. Uh, next Tuesday, uh, November 26th, it's the Tuesday of Thanksgiving week. We will not meet for men's Bible study, so no men's Bible study next Tuesday. Next gathering will be two weeks from today, Tuesday, December 3rd. Uh, you'll get that reminder again in email, I'm sure, but just note that on your calendar, no meeting next Tuesday, meet again on the 3rd. This semester, we're, we've been studying, obviously, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, supremacy of Christ over all things, and this morning we're going to talk about the supremacy of Christ over death. Now, the supremacy of Christ, in many ways, might often feel like a theoretical distant topic. Um, when we think uh, about some of the things we've talked about this semester, hopefully most of it has been personalized and applied to your life, but to think about the supremacy of Christ over creation might, might feel a bit detached, or the supremacy of Christ over heaven. We've not been there yet. Uh, to think about the supremacy over truth. These are largely, dominantly theoretical concepts, but when we talk about the supremacy of Christ over death, this is a topic that is inescapably personal. It's inescapably personal because you and I all know and love people who have died. And as much as we may not want to admit it, you and I will die. Unless Christ returns first, you and I will experience death at some time, in some way. And so there, there couldn't be a more relevant, certain, absolutely personal issue than thinking about how does Jesus and His supremacy over all things interact with this topic of death. And so I want to begin this morning and just encourage you, as, as we read this passage from the Gospel of John, as you um, think about some of the things that you hear from God's Word, think also not only about what is God's Word saying to you, but, but as you listen to that, think about, reflect on how has death, how has the experience of death marked your life? How has it marked your life? Who are some of the significant people in your life that you have loved, who have died? How has it influenced relationships, beliefs, habits and practices, emotions? Um, we don't need to be afraid of what we've experienced or what we feel about death. I know it's, a, it's a, maybe an overly introspective question this morning. Hard to think about death when you've got a a long calendar list of responsibilities for the day, but I want us to lean into that personal dynamic to it this morning. I think it'll profit us greatly. There are a lot of important passages we consider if we think about what the Bible says about death or even about Jesus' supremacy over death. There's a lot of good and helpful, important passages. We could talk about Psalm 90 or Psalm 116. We could talk about 1 Kings 17. We could talk about 1 Corinthians 15, may touch on that just a bit, but really, um, rather than going to a 
poem or a doctrinal passage. I want us to go to a narrative, to a story, to a dramatic story about Jesus' supremacy over death. It's John chapter 11. It's a long passage, you'll notice. It's covering front and back of your page this morning, of your handout. Um, It's long, but it's a beautiful story, a powerful story that speaks to Christ's supremacy over death in, in many ways. And so rather than read the whole thing and then work our way back through it, I'm just going to read the relevant chunks of the passage as they come. So beginning with verses 1 through 16, we're going to start there, verses 1 through 16, thinking about Christ's rule over death. Before we read it, though, let me pray and ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for time together as brothers in Christ. We thank you that you have given us life and breath for this day. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to use our days, to use the life you have given us, to use the minds that are active and alive to to focus upon you. We pray that you would meet with us and speak to us, that you would shape and fashion us by your word. Equip us, O Lord, to think well about death, um, to respond to it rightly, um, to be prepared for the day of our own death by being found in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verses 1 through 16 of this passage kind of set up the context of all that's going to happen. And spoiler alert, a guy dies and Jesus raises him from the dead. That's what happens in the story. But we're going to work through the drama of how it happens. Uh, What is Jesus up to? So beginning in verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. Then after his disciples, uh, then he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are not the twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now there's several things that Jesus says and does in this passage that indicate that he reigns and rules over death that Jesus is sovereignly in control of 
Lazarus' death and of his proximity to Lazarus when he dies and of the disciples' understanding of Lazarus' death. You notice in verse 6, it says that when Jesus heard Lazarus was ill, what did he do? He stayed where he was and did not go to him. You notice later in verses 14 and 15, um, Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus has died. How does he know? Because he is sovereign, because he is omniscient, because he is supreme over death. No one has come and told him recently, Lazarus is dead. The disciples themselves are confused about the status of Lazarus. Is he ill and sleeping or is he dead? Jesus is able to clarify it because he knows. He reigns supreme. And notice in verse 15, he says, For your sake, I'm glad I was not there when Lazarus died. He's glad he wasn't there when Lazarus died. Why? Because Jesus has a plan for addressing Lazarus' death. There are multiple things Jesus says and does that indicate Jesus is supreme and sovereignly ruling over Lazarus' death. Now, uh, we need to be very specific. <clears throat> very specific. Well, what does it exactly mean that Christ rules over death? It's possible to have a very thin view of Jesus' supremacy over death. I want us to land this morning with a very thick, comprehensive, specific view of Jesus' supremacy over death. A thin view of Jesus' supremacy might mean, well, Jesus is so supreme that he can, he can help us feel better when someone dies. Is that true? Absolutely. Our God is a God of peace. He gives us his Holy Spirit of comfort but when we speak of, of Jesus' power and supremacy over death, we're, we're speaking about something more than just his ability to change how we feel about death. Um, later on in the passage, we'll hear twice Lazarus' sisters say, Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. Why do they say that? Well, because they know Jesus has more power than just making us feel better. He could also prevent death by healing illness. And so we could increase our view of his supremacy by saying not only can he change how we feel about death, he can actually delay death by healing illnesses and diseases, um, rescuing people from things that might lead to death, that could lead to death. Does Jesus have power over illness? Absolutely. That's everywhere in the Gospels. Um, his power over creation, his power over disease, his power over sin. Um, but when we speak again about Jesus ruling over death in this passage, it's not just that he had the power, the theoretical power to delay Lazarus' death or prevent Lazarus' death. That's what everyone thought. That's where people, um, Mary and Martha and the disciples, that's where they assumed Jesus' supremacy over death ended with his ability to delay it by healing an illness and that he would have to be immediately present with the person who was ill 
in order to give that healing. And Jesus is going to show that his supremacy, his rule over death goes far beyond that. He can reverse the curse of death. He will destroy death. He doesn't have to be present with the person in order to accomplish that. So, it's important to see Jesus' supremacy runs deep. Um, And there are many ways in which human supremacy attempts to push back the curse of death or escape death. You think of... um, the, the Egyptian pharaohs and all of the expense and effort that was gone to in order to secure through their human supremacy and political and financial supremacy, secure a good death or an escape from death. Jesus reigns perfectly over it. He, he reigns perfectly over it because he's the one who introduced the curse of death. God actually introduces death into the world as the curse for sin, Genesis chapter 2 and 3 remind us of that. He's the one who rules our beginnings and our ends, Psalm 139. And so Jesus is purposefully in this uh, setup to this story, indicating he reigns, he is in control in a sovereign, deep, specific way. And he's going to use his power to reverse death. So the next passage in the the next set of verses in the passage, verses 17 through 27, begin to show us how Christ not only rules over death as the sovereign one, but he rescues us from death through himself and ultimately through his atonement. He rescues us from death. So verses 17 to 27, they say this, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb Four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus here uh, is introducing to Martha the reality that he not only can prevent death, but that he will reverse the curse of death completely. He speaks of himself being the resurrection and the life. Resurrection meaning raised from death and transformed completely, glorified into the image of Jesus Christ. Just as Christ being raised, we would be raised like him. And Jesus is is pushing back. Martha, uh, again, says, if you'd been here, he might not have died or would not have died. Um, She says, I know he'll be raised and experience life again on the last day. But Jesus says, 
that He personally and now has the power to raise her brother, Lazarus, and that everyone who believes in Him, even though they die, yet they will live. Now, Jesus is speaking kind of in multiple layers of meaning. For those who believe in Jesus, uh, there is life after death in the sense that your spirit goes immediately into the presence of God upon death. For believers who are in Christ dying united to Jesus Christ, at death the, the spirit, the soul, and the body are separated and the spirit goes immediately into the presence of Jesus. That is part of what Jesus means by, though he die, yet he shall live. The spirit, the soul, enduring, alive in the presence of God. But there's more to that phrase, though he die, yet he shall live, in that Jesus is promising physical, bodily resurrection. That's what Martha's referring to, that she's confident that there is a resurrection coming on the last day. And Jesus affirms, yes, there is a physical bodily resurrection on the last day. When Christ returns on that last day, God's Word tells us that the bodies of both the just and the unjust are raised. And the bodies of the just, those who are in Christ, are raised to, to be glorified, to, made new, to be made new like Jesus' own resurrected body. The bodies of the unjust, of those who die apart from Christ, rebelling and denying him are raised, but they're raised to face eternal torment and eternal death. And so Jesus is reminding Martha of these things, and you'll notice Jesus doesn't say, you know, Martha, I have, uh, I have the power of resurrection and life, or I give resurrection and life. What does he say? I am the resurrection in the life. I am the resurrection in the life. And Jesus doesn't spell it out, but what that means is that resurrection and life, Jesus isn't just merely a conduit for those things, as if he can divinely secure them from his heavenly Father and just distribute them to those he loves. Jesus is the means of resurrection and life. Jesus doesn't merely rescue from death. Jesus rescues through death, through his own death. It's not happened yet in the story of John. Jesus is anticipating it. He is moving quickly towards the cross. This very next chapter in the Gospel of John is going to be his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus' own death is right before him, within a matter of days. And Jesus knows that it is by his death, by Jesus' own death, that he will be able to offer resurrection and life to all who believe. Jesus had to die in order to be the resurrection and the life. Um, an amazing passage that, that reminds us of this, of, of how Jesus used his supremacy, his supremacy over creation, his supremacy over life, his supremacy over humanity, his supremacy over death. Jesus reigning supreme 
did the amazing thing of putting himself beneath the earthly power of death. Hebrews chapter 2 reminds us of it. We've been talking about Hebrews in morning worship. Hebrews chapter 2, um, verses 8, the second half of verse 8, and then also verse 9 say this. These verses are speaking of God the Father putting things under the subjection or under the rule of Jesus. And the verses say this, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's what we've been talking about all semester. There is nothing outside of Jesus' control. It says he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death amazing. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, that he is worshiped, that he is acknowledged as beautiful and true and good because he died. And then the verse goes on, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And that's what Jesus is alluding to when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, In me there is resurrection and life because I have passed through death. I have passed through death. I am raised again. And therefore, anyone who believes in me, joins me, is united to me in passing through death and experiencing resurrection life. Nicholas Wolterstorff uh, is a philosopher at Yale and many, many years ago, uh, lost his son in a hiking accident. His son was in Europe backpacking, had an accident falling off of a, a rock face, and died. And Wolterstorff, a Christian, a deep thinker, a philosopher, says this in a book that he uh, wrote called Lament for a Son. He says, God is not only the God of sufferers, but the God who suffers. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved Son to suffer like us, through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. That's how God has given life to us, not by just simply delivering resurrection and life with some almighty power, but by humbling himself and experiencing, tasting death for us, for all who would believe in him. And so death then for the believer is like falling asleep. You hear that language in this passage. Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the reason Jesus uses the terminology of falling asleep for a Christian who has died is because eternal life and resurrection life are absolutely certain. They have been secured not by our morality or by our goodness. They've been secured by the atonement of Jesus on the cross in his glorious resurrection. And so Jesus and Paul and uh, Matthew in his gospel 
will all speak of the death of a believer as a falling asleep. They did know the difference between falling asleep and actually dying. The point is, resurrection, life eternal, is so certain that it's like falling asleep. Now, in the end, Jesus does heal Lazarus, beginning in verse 38. He raises Lazarus from death. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead men, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so we see there Jesus fulfilling that promise of rescue from death. But I want to end this morning by looking at the verses from this passage that we haven't read yet, beginning in verse 28. The thing that's unique about this story, about this passage, is that Jesus doesn't merely reveal that he reigns over the circumstances and the timing and the fact and the knowledge of Lazarus' death and rescue Lazarus from death and promise rescue for all who believe in him. One of the amazing and absolutely unique parts of this story is that we get to see Jesus' deep emotional response to death. Now, we're a bunch of guys in a room <clears throat> talking about emotions may not be comfortable. Talking about emotional responses to death may not feel fun, but there's something important to see here about the relationship between Jesus' supremacy over death and his personal experience, his emotional sympathy in the face of death. It says in verse 28, <clears throat> when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying, in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. It's an amazing, intimate, personal revelation of Jesus' emotional life. And we may read this and think, <clears throat> well, 
for Jesus to cry about Lazarus' death must mean that death is supreme over Jesus. Death has overwhelmed Jesus emotionally. Um, but the reality is Jesus is weeping not because he has been overwhelmed or confused or surprised by death. He's weeping because his emotions are actually perfectly and rightly ordered. He is grieving something that should be grieved. He is weeping over something that should cause us weeping. Death has this way of throwing off our equilibrium emotionally. Sometimes in the face of death, feeling joy and peace because a loved one in Christ died in Christ and certainly is free from the, the pains and journeying of this world. Sometimes the emotions of loneliness because while they are in the presence of God, they are not in our presence. Sometimes emotions of guilt of, well, what was the last thing I did with them or said to them? Sometimes just emotions of anger, anger at God for causing the death in His supremacy, causing the death of someone we love. But here Jesus perfectly responds. Notice that both Mary and Martha tell Jesus the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus models for us the right beliefs and emotions about death. He says to Martha a word of hope. I'm the resurrection and the life. And everyone who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. He says to Mary, who raises the exact same point, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. He raises to Mary the proper, perfect emotion of grief. He weeps with her. He says, show me where he is. And he joins her and her friends in weeping. As Christians, we are called to grieve with hope. Hope because Christ gives us the victory by his death and resurrection, but grief because death is to be grieved. It's a curse from sin. It's hard. It's difficult. And so many of you know that far better than me. And so Jesus doesn't live in denial of death. He doesn't live detached from death. He, his supremacy doesn't mean that he is somehow unmoved by the experience of death of his people. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what it is to taste death himself. And so he models both this hope and his grief. We could call it a doxological grief. Tim Keller says, look at Jesus. He was perfect, right? And yet he goes around crying all the time. He's always weeping, a man of sorrows. And do you know why? Because he is perfect. Because when you are not all absorbed in yourself, you can feel the sadness of this world. And the weeping drives you into joy. It enhances the joy. It enables you to actually feel your grief without it sinking you. 
In other words, you are finally emotionally healthy. That's an important word for us as we think about death, as we think about the death of loved ones. Grieving with hope. Grieving, responding like Jesus. Now, last thing, real quick. The book of Revelation is the capstone of the Bible. The book of Revelation tells us a bit, not everything, a bit about the end of all things and life everlasting in the new heavens and new earth. And at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, John, the author, is given a vision of Jesus in all of his supremacy. Um, He describes Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. He describes his robe and his hair with all of this, and the sound of his voice being like many waters, with all of this incredible, powerful imagery. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And then listen to what he says at the end. He says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus reigns supreme over death. He reigns supreme over it because he's God. He reigns supreme over it because he has died and lives forevermore. And if you are in him, he uses the keys of death and Hades to open you into the presence of his heavenly father and to give you resurrection life. If you deny Jesus, if you reject the offer of life in him, as he's offered in the gospel, he uses that key of death and Hades to open to you eternal death in hell. And so this morning, I encourage you, think carefully about whether you are in Christ, able to face death with grief and hope, able to experience resurrection and life, or whether you are somehow not trusting, keeping Christ who is resurrection and life at arm's length and perhaps in danger of the eternal death that God's word describes. I encourage you to, uh, to gather with your tables and talk and pray together. I'm going to pray for us before we do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. It's long, and so we pray that you would help us to understand it and profit from it. Father, we pray that we would view our lives and even our deaths through the lens of what you have done to rescue us from sin and from death. Help us to trust in you. Give us the gift of faith. Help us to grieve as those who have hope because Christ has conquered. In Jesus' name, amen.